0: Right now, my granny lives there, but when she dies, it's going to be up for grabs. Of course, my cousins will all be snatching for it.
1: <clears throat> but if I play my cards right, maybe...
2: It's amazing. Can you imagine?
1: My Porsche parked out the front. Mm-hmm. You running around after the kids.
2: Or the other way around. Would your parents really let you have it?
1: More that through a million of their hopes.
2: It goes without saying that what happened at the White House farm on the very early hours of August 7th, 1985, was both horrifying and chilling. In the previous episodes of this podcast, we took a closer look at the complex dynamics leading up to the murders, as well as the evidence and police work that complicated this disturbing case even further. Yet, for those close to the tragedy, the story didn't end when newspapers stopped reporting on it. On the contrary, the psychological repercussions of such a brutal murder will last a lifetime for the victim's family members, as will the lingering questions as to why it all happened. What could incite somebody to plot and carry out something so heinous? And how did the mindsets and attitudes of those involved, at whatever level play out as the true nature of the crime was revealed. I'm Lauren Greg Pacheco, and this is the fifth episode of the official companion podcast to the HBO Max series... The murders at White House Farm. Today, we'll be exploring the psychology behind the murders and major players in the crime by speaking with the series writer Chris Merxa about how we got into their minds for the show's dramatized version of events. We'll also discuss motives for the murder itself, as well as what it took to recreate the dialogue and actions of the family, the police, and all those involved in the trial. As the writer and creator of the supernatural thriller TV series Requiem and the Australian true crime series Underbelly, Chris is no stranger to the world of the macabre. The murders at White House Farm, however, presented him with the specific challenge of reimagining a true story from the past in a vivid and engaging way that remained true to what actually happened. Yet, he also needed to weave in the suspense and tension an audience expects from a TV drama. This is where the psychological aspects of the story truly come into play. Chris has set it up so that we're with the different players on this journey from the very beginning. Even if you know the outline of what happened in real life or how shockingly the tragedy played out, the series leaves plenty of room to discover and question just what the truth actually is. Anyone who watches the murders at White House Farm will find themselves pulled into the story and drawn deeply into the psyche of the characters. Their doubts, fears, confusion, sadness, and even guilt or lack thereof— In other words, we're experiencing the unfolding of the events in the same ways in which the characters do, asking the same questions and feeling many of the same emotions. In this episode of the podcast, I talked with Chris about the techniques and methods he used to bring the psychology of the characters to life, or back from the dead, and picked his brain about getting into theirs. Here now is my conversation with Chris Merxa. What was it about this story that immediately connected with you? Well, I think
0: two things grabbed me. One, of course, was the, like, I'm interested in true crime, and this was an incredibly intriguing case. It was, in some respects, the the murky, opaque nature of the thing that really got me. I mean, I got to the end of Caroline Lee's book and I did some further reading, and I still thought, well, I'm still not sure what exactly happened here. The gothic kind of nature of the whole crime, this farmhouse in rural England where this family are so horribly murdered under such mysterious circumstances, that appealed to my sensibility, I guess. I'm attracted to those kind of macabre gothic stories. The second consideration, and maybe the more powerful one was, I suppose, the human and emotional side of it. Reading about Colin Caffell who had you know, dropped his twin boys off at this farmhouse for what he thought would be a wonderful family holiday with his ex-wife and for that sort of tragedy to take place. And as a father of two myself, I just thought, like, how do you come back from that? You know, how do you survive something like that? How Colin Caffell came back from that and how then he got into this sort of, situation where Jeremy Bamber was psychologically manipulating him in the wake of that crime, a crime which Bamber himself presumably had committed, I thought that was just an incredibly gut-wrenching emotional position for a character to be in.
2: Absolutely. And I've read both Carol Ann's book and, and Collins, and I can imagine that they were both just incredible resources for you. What did you rely on each source for?
0: It's such a clear division in some ways because Carol Ann Lee's book gave me the detail of the crime stuff, the police procedural aspect. It gave it in spades. You know, it was such a meticulously researched book and there was so much detail. And then Colin's book gave me the emotional heart of the story. So although we talked to many other people and although I used many other sources, between those two books, they kind of delivered, you know, the guts of this show, really. The emotional on one side and the procedural crime stuff on the other.
2: There is a great quote where you said that the story raises all sorts of questions about the slippery nature of truth. Was there any point in your research that you realized, oh my gosh, this is not the direction I thought I'd be taking the story in. Was there anything that really changed your perception of the story?
0: Yeah, I had started off thinking about this story and I even initially pitched it as a story all about the elusive nature of truth. Because I got to the end of Carol Ann Lee's book and I really had genuine doubts about what had happened here. You know, how do you account for this? And I was wrestling with that stuff even as we were developing the show. So the big change for me was when I reached a point where I realised that I just couldn't make sense of any other version of this other than Jeremy did it. And then the nature of the show did change a little bit, but having said that, I still remain committed to telling this story in a way that the audience could draw their own conclusions. When I'm writing Jeremy, is he a guy who's covering up Acting as some of the police said, or is he an admittedly perhaps cocky, greedy young man, but ultimately a, an innocent person who's wrongly accused? And what a terrible thing to be wrongly accused of.
2: I want to go through each character with you, but in general, who was the most difficult character for you to bring to life on the page?
0: Well, it's Jeremy precisely because you're always wrestling with that possibility that that he's sincere. I mean, even when I decided to write him as a guilty person, at the same time, there was all sorts of things he did in real life, which I was determined to dramatise in the series. You know, it's hard to reconcile all the things he did with any single understanding of his character. So he's a very contradictory character. Screenwriters love to talk about a character's motivation. On any single presumed or postulated motivation for what he's thinking or doing at a particular time, you hit up against inconsistencies and behaviours which are really hard to reconcile with that presumed motivation.
2: You do it wonderfully well, though, because he is very charming, charismatic, and an unreliable narrator self-serving at times, but at the same time, he has the benefit of sympathy because of the extreme grief that he could be going through as an possibly innocent person.
0: If you imagine for a moment that he has been wrongfully accused, then it's a terrible accusation. You know, that's a terrible thing to imagine that if you really do take that seriously for a moment, then this man is, it is one of the great miscarriages of justice if you believe that to be true when you're watching the show, I think the audience ought to be always asking themselves that question. If this guy's being wrongfully accused, then everything I'm assuming here flips on its head.
2: Absolutely. And grief in general plays such an interesting role Throughout the series, and not just in terms of the aftermath of the murder, but there is a sense of loss attached to each character that you develop so wonderfully well, whether it's Colin mourning the loss of his marriage or Sheila wrestling with, you know, her sanity, the boys trying to articulate the darker side of religious fervor. Do you find it to be a very interesting kind of tool for a universal truth.
0: I always find that when I'm writing a character, I like to try and find a part of myself that is resonant with how I imagine them. And certainly in writing a lot of the characters here, I did draw upon my own experiences of grief. This is a story about terrible loss, not just for Colin, but all the characters in the show are touched by this disaster, even the cops. One of the really powerful things that that came away from my research was how touched the police all were personally by this tragedy. So I think they're all kind of dealing with a species of grief.
2: Diving into the psychology of the specific characters, I can imagine that Sheila was a challenging one because she doesn't have a lot of screen time in the series. And just in that first episode, the swing of emotions that you had to write and had to be portrayed must have been difficult.
0: You know, Sheila is something of a mystery at the heart of the show too, because after all, in a way, you have two suspects in this story. One, obviously, is Sheila and the other is Jeremy. So just as Jeremy is sometimes enigmatic, and one of the reasons for that is because depending whether you're looking at him through the prism of assumed guilt or assumed innocence, it changes everything about him. And obviously the same thing is to some extent true of Sheila also. You know, if she really committed these crimes, then that would tell us something about her psychology that was like very profound and tragic, but would really put her in a different territory as a character. That had to be at least an open question for much of the series, because It was an open question for the people who were wrestling with making sense of this crime.
2: Also, the fact that she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, that by nature makes anything seem possible in terms of her actions that she wouldn't have had necessarily control over, but you are able to portray her struggle with that, but also her vulnerability. And through it all comes this incredible love for her sons.
0: I think one of the defining characteristics for her, however you see her, is that clearly she really did love her sons. And the accounts that you get from people who knew her are of her being so attentive to them and so loving and usually so gentle with them, you know. But the illness does throw that all up in the air. It raises all sorts of questions. And very obviously, Jeremy must have assumed that people would believe her capable of terrible things because of the illness. And I guess that proved to be true. We're working in a world here where mental illness was much less well understood than it is today. There were m- far more prejudices around it. Tragically, and I don't want to sort of victim blame here, but tragically, I don't think she got the best support from her parents that she may have with her illness. And of course, tragically, her mother was also wrestling with mental illness, which compounds the whole thing.
2: Mom and Dad. Tell them I
1: don't want these injections anymore. Well, I'd, I'd love to, but um, look, how about I do it when I come back to pick you up? Why not now? It's just your mum; you know, she's already annoyed. Please. But if there's a blow-up, I'd rather not leave the boys in the middle of it. But, Hey, I I will. I'll do it. I'll do it when I come back. Hey, I will. What? Right? You won't.
2: Moving on to Colin, I think that it must have been very difficult for you to do justice without sensationalizing or falling into some kind of cliche in terms of the level of grief he had to process. How difficult was that for you to find that balance?
0: My process usually involves writing a lot of scenes that I end up throwing away just because I'm trying to find the right emotional tone or the right position for the character at a given time in the narrative or whatever. And for me, the process is very often one of trial and error. And honestly, I wrote so many Colin grieving scenes and happily 80 or 90% of those got thrown away. But it was one of the hardest things for me to calibrate.
2: I can imagine, particularly since Colin was so closely involved with the production, that that added on some levels, an extra layer of responsibility, but also was a really good litmus test at all times. I'm
0: very reluctant to take on true stories. You know, adapting true stories is a tricky business. I mean, it brings a huge moral responsibility because you, you're you going to be depicting... Real people, in this case, people who are alive and walking around and they're going to watch the show and and it's going to impact on their lives in a very heavy way. So it's not a thing I take on lightly. Having Colin involved meant that uh, that sense of responsibility that you feel in adapting a, a true story was always foregrounded. Having him there always kept reminding me, these are real people. This is a true story. This is not just entertainment. It's more than that. But at the same time, having Colonel gave us, I think, a sense of legitimacy. You know, having his blessing, having him tell me that he felt that this story could be useful to other people who've suffered loss and who've suffered grief, that really made me feel like uh, we had a blessing from sort of on high.
2: And I really do think, having read his book, you really captured the fact that he doesn't want to be portrayed as a victim and that he has a resilience that he has drawn from his grief. And I think you make that very clear in his desire to celebrate not only the memory of the boys and their spirit in life, but it was so important to him that he give redemption to Sheila.
0: Yeah, you know, the central thing he expressed, even from that first meeting, was that he didn't want to be portrayed as a victim. That was so important to him. I don't think that's just someone being concerned about how they're going to appear on the screen. I think it's just a truthful assessment of how the guy dealt with this tragedy. I mean, I think he did manage to rise up and he's not a victim. Just be wrongful to depict him that way. Of course, he was also very concerned that Sheila be treated fairly. You know, her memory is hugely important to him too. I certainly was always mindful of that though. It's like one of those things you could almost write above your computer screen while you're typing away, you know, remember, this man was not a victim here. He came away from it with dignity.
2: I think the character that you portray Colin as is very admirable, but it also makes it more difficult when you see him manipulated and almost seduced in his weakest moments by Jeremy.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key sort of psychological dynamic at the heart of the show. You know, it is the fact that after the tragic murders, Jeremy actually tries to make himself so much closer to Colin. He like really moves in on Colin and really attaches himself to this guy. And Colin, being an open-hearted person, he's unfortunately very vulnerable to that. He was very vulnerable to that kind of an approach. So to me, that's sort of, in some ways, the emotional driver of the series and was incredibly important to get that right. And... Obviously, Jeremy is able to work his charms with many people, you know, not just Colin.
2: Oh, and it's so painful to watch. There's one particular scene where they're sitting and it's so obvious that Colin's being manipulated and that Jeremy is gradually turning him against all the members of the family and creating these scenarios where he's really isolating Colin, so it becomes this mentality of the two of them against everyone else.
1: Mum said that the kids needed a proper home. Cole, she said that they'd find our foster family through the church. Well, they, they, they couldn't do that. They, I've, I've got shared custody of boys. I know, bodies. I know. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing rattled me, and so
0: I forgot about the gun. I just left it out there on the bench, you know, the, the gun that she used.
1: It was just a mistake. They're all gone. My whole family's gone. It's because I'm back. <laughs> You've got family, Jen. <laughs> You've got me, and we've got each other. You always will. We always will.
0: <gasps> what I think Jeremy did very cleverly was that he exploited, I guess, tensions which were already there. So obviously, in any extended family there are going to be tensions in those relationships. And you've also got that divide between country people and then you've got Colin who's very urbane from the city, urbane city slicker, you know. You've got that immediate cultural divide, but then you've also got all those tensions that are in any family that were simmering away and that that are obviously going to come to the surface in the wake of a huge tragedy like this. And it does appear that Jeremy was clever enough to use those, exploit those, crank those up where possible, and yeah, feed a lot of them to Colin in a way that would would appeal to Colin.
2: And when we spoke to Colin for the second episode of this podcast, he did speak quite a bit about how Jeremy attempted to elicit sympathy in this manner.
1: When it all happened, he put on this performance about, well, just basically creating a, a whole tissue of lies right from the start Um, first about there being a big argument in the farmhouse where his parents were planning to take custody of the children from Sheila and I and put them with a local Christian foster family that immediately turned me against them and he elicited my support by how terrible it was that he'd lost his family, all his family and everything and then he started to talk about how horribly his cousins and uncles and aunts were treating him so I said well if you need to escape come to my flat and he kind of just started seducing everybody there he then told me that the cousins had said that um, for the funeral they're only going to send black flowers for Sheila's coffin that turned me against them he was very divisive incredibly manipulative I did write a letter to him saying, you know, is there anything you can add to the story for me just to try and help me put this together? And he, again, sent this quite seductive letter saying, "Um, I'm sorry, I can't help you with this because it's so obvious I'm innocent. He was still trying to seduce me, still trying to see me as an ally. And then there was an interview I did with a magazine something he saw, and then I got a very, very nasty, vitriolic letter from him straight after. And I think he basically is a psychopath. It's an extreme form of narcissism. The narcissist is very good at punishing you, and they'll know exactly where their barbs will hurt you.
2: Your take on Jeremy as a person and a character... Do you think that he was motivated by greed or was there an underlying cruelty and evil there as well?
0: I think there's no way of understanding Jeremy as being motivated by one simple driver. There's got to be more than one thing going on there because he does behave at times in ways that are so mutually contradictory. I don't have any doubt that there was some kind of very deep-seated resentment toward his parents and particularly his mother. I don't know whether his adoption played a part in that. Certainly he felt that uh, his sister Sheila was in some ways favoured over him. He had to work on the farm where she was bought a flat in London and she was, to his mind, indulged while he sometimes saw himself just being treated as a worker on the farm, which I think is ridiculous. But that was his take on it. So there was that I think there's no doubt that he was a flashy young man who wanted to drive fast cars and dress smart. And we are in the middle of the 80s, you know, it's that greed is good era. He's a perfect example of how that can go horribly wrong. But I think there are also aspects of his underlying character which we see expressing themselves. And, yes, I think there does seem to be a pleasure he takes in cruelty. You know, the fact that he ultimately shows Colin the nude pictures of Sheila at a time in the whole story when you'd think if anything you'd want to be keeping your head down and not alienating Colin and not drawing attention to yourself and yet he does this crazy thing and the only way I can understand it is some sort of a desire to rub Colin's nose in this unsavoury aspect of his relationship with Sheila or something. It just feels like a moment of cruelty for the sake of cruelty.
1: I kept the photos for you, if you want them. Yeah, I do want them. Please. Yeah? Yeah, help yourself. Um, I've uh, bounced her some, some work stuff too. Her <coughs> modelling portfolio. Oh, wait, look. You'll love these. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> look like she got desperate for work. Yeah, she really regretted this. These are tame compared to some of the others I've got. The other ones, you can see every detail. Why are you being like this?
2: It's not my fault. I didn't take them. And the betrayal to then shop those photos to the tabloids.
0: You know, it's funny, when the show like this goes out, you know, you look at the Twitter feed and so many details like that, people on Twitter are saying, uh, oh, you know, they've made this up. This could never have happened. And so many of those details that were picked up by people as being implausible I felt like shooting back, you know, this is exactly what happened. You know, he exactly did that thing. He behaved in some really bizarre ways and did some things that I can't, again, I struggle to account for, but I think it must in the end come down to a sadistic element of his character, which he just couldn't resist. And the way he treated his girlfriend, and I think all the women in his life, you see that dimension there too. Although the psychological mix there is much more complex, it does seem like at times he could be very sort of childish and want them to almost mother him. And at other times he could just turn that around and be very, very dominating and cruel. So, you know, again, those contradictions. But I think you start to see this psychological portrait emerge of someone who is not a very nice customer. No,
2: particularly not to Julie. And I want to talk about her because... Was it a choice in the beginning? She's such a peripheral character. You know, she is always in the scene, but mostly in the background, and it's very difficult to get a read on her. And it seems as if she's almost taken for granted by everyone, including Jeremy.
0: She was one of the big, hardest characters, again, to get a grip on, because, let's face it, for a month, she apparently, according to her own account, knew that Jeremy had murdered these people, including two little boys, and she didn't say anything. Essentially, she backed him up until that point where she snaps. And to be fair to Jeremy, that point comes after he breaks off their relationship. So you have to ask yourself what was going through her head, you know, for a month. Yes, you could say that she might have been fearful of him and she claims that she was up to a point, and I think that is probably part of the story. But I think that the real story is far more complex. She's obviously being manipulated by him. There's no doubt about that. The power relationship between them is very, very one-sided. She turned 21 while this was all happening, so she's very young. She's essentially a country girl who's not, I don't think, terribly sophisticated. Jeremy is this extremely dashing, handsome older man, you know, the son of the local wealthy family and I think she was very much in a kind of psychological thrall, which is not just about a fear of physical violence or anything as simple or brutal as that. I think it's much more complex. The fact that she sits in the background so much in the series partly reflects my understanding of the way events really transpired. You know, she did cut a very quiet, demure figure for many people, I think, in the early stages. And I. Assume that's partly because there's so much bubbling away beneath the surface. Can you imagine being in that position? There's a room full of police and all these people have been murdered and you're looking at your boyfriend and knowing that he did it. So I think that to some extent her response to that was to withdraw into herself. I think that was both a truth for the character, a way of depicting the truth of that character, but it also has a dramatic function, I guess, because obviously she is going to become the key element in the crime story that breaks the whole case open. So we were thinking about letting her sit in the background rather than her being the person who would break this wide open.
2: But you actually do it in a very measured way, her her turning and you keep the viewer guessing there's the moment when she volunteers to identify the bodies and you wonder if perhaps she's a little evil like Jeremy if there's some kind of pleasure she's taking in that moment And then later when they're in the pub and they're drinking with friends and Jeremy's mates come over to visit and you see her discomfort and she storms out, rightfully offended, but then he goes back and just draws her in with this kind of mesmerising, seductive moment.
0: It was important to make her journey plausible for the viewer because, again, how could you go round to Colin's house, go out to dinner with him, knowing that your boyfriend's killed his children. I I mean, how does a person do that? I mean, many people have said Jeremy Bamber's a psychopath. Fine, okay, if he's a psychopath, then I understand how he did that. But do we have to then presume that she is as well? I want the audience to draw their own conclusions, but it was important to put on the table the elements that they could use to start building a plausible psychological portrait of how someone might end up going along with that kind of thing. And obviously Jeremy's manipulation is, and her infatuation with him, is a very big part of that.
2: Again, when we spoke to Colin, he described a pretty upsetting moment that not only illustrated Jeremy's nature, but the disturbing nature of his Bonnie and Clyde like relationship with Julie.
1: It was only when I ceased to be useful that I started to see the real Jeremy. The performance was dropped, you know, when the funeral was over and we were in the hearse going to the crematorium, he started behaving very, very inappropriately. He was laughing around in the front of the hearse with Julie, saying what he'd like to be doing with her later that afternoon, basically having sex. And he couldn't wait to get her back to his cottage, which I thought was dreadful. There's not much doubt, even on her own
0: account of what happened, that she was kind of Jeremy's partner in crime up to a point and that point clearly I think does fall short of being actively involved in the murders. I don't think she was that. But, you know, there was a bunch of criminal enterprises he had going before, small-time stuff, which she was not only in some cases actively involved in but even taking the lead on the, on some things like the cheque forgery and so on. One of the reasons why she was vulnerable to this is because my guess is that he offered her a exciting, transgressive life she gets to not only hang out with this handsome, glamorous, dashing man, but she's also doing these naughty, transgressive things which are exciting and which he's telling her they deserve it, you know, they deserve this money they're stealing or we should do that. He's feeding that impulse in her and obviously when he goes that one step too far, she's left standing there going, well, I've been along on this ride up until now. Is it too late to get off?
1: I should just burn White House down with Mum and Dad in it.
2: Jeremy, you can't do that. You're such a waste to burn down such a beautiful old house. <laughs> you're right. No, you're, you're right. You're right.
1: Guess I have to think of something else.
2: When she does make that decision, when she does come forward in episode five, do you view her as heroic? At that point, is she one of the heroes in this story?
0: Well, it comes down to how you define heroism, you know. I think she finds a strength in herself to do that. I don't think it was a small thing to do at that point. You know, having gone that far, many of the worst crimes in history have been committed incrementally. You build up slowly and people's tolerance for wrongdoing and for wickedness slowly is built up. So if you take enough small steps, you end up being, you know, a monster. She took a lot of those steps and she got to a pretty bad place where she was helping cover up this crime. And to then step down from that place and do the right thing, I think does suggest she had some courage in her. You could call that heroic, yes. Yes.
2: Speaking of characters who start out on the same path and then take very different directions, Taff and Stan Jones, was that a difficult dynamic to get right without making either one a caricature?
0: This is one of these things that you get in crime stories quite often. You know, the junior cop who suspects something's not quite right and the senior cop who tells them just wind the case up. The trick we had to deal with there was that it's actually what happened. And the other thing that came out was that, while I'm sure Taff had many fine qualities, there's no doubt that he was also seen by some of his colleagues as a bully and a man who did not brook any dissent from those below him. If the gov says jump, you jump. The boss, the guy who's running the investigation, you don't question him and you just get on board and follow him. And I think that's what went wrong here. I had to be true to what the research was telling me And yet at the same time, you want to imbue these characters with complexity. I think the interesting thing about Taff is that it seems like he really genuinely did believe Bamber. He believed that Jeremy was that guy we talked about earlier, that guy who's been subject to this terrible, terrible tragedy. And when he gets junior officers coming to him and saying, I think that guy is actually our murderer, he's like, what? You know, you're going to put this guy through more torture after he's been through all that. You're now going to make these wild accusations against him. So I think there was a sincere belief motivating Taft. After that, you know, he's dug himself so deep into a hole and his pride and his professional standing are so invested in that, that he can't back away from it. And the character of the man is that he just becomes more and more belligerent with it and more and more convinced, you know, or at least showing more conviction publicly.
2: When I told you to look after a family, I didn't think you'd start believing every bloody word they said. Look, Anne
0: Eaton's got a stake in this, I agree, so I'm taking it with a pinch of salt, but it's got to be worth testing, hasn't it? Fine. Send it down. But you know the drill. It's murder-suicide. So bottom of the pile. I'll settle for that.
2: So I was actually wondering how much of their conversations, their butting head is dramatic interpretation and how much of that really happened in front of other people.
0: Again, for those who might think that, oh, no police officer would behave in such a shouty, bullying manner, the truth is that's what happened. There are a bunch of witnesses who describe TAF going nuts, shouting at people, particularly shouting at Stan, you know, behaving in that way more than once and in contexts where other police officers witness that. So although the specific words are obviously mine in most cases, the content of what was said in a lot of those confrontations is taken from real accounts of what happened, you know, and real accounts of where the investigation was at certain times when Taft's walking around going, okay, this happened here, this happened here, she was shot here, he was shot there, These obviously they've had a fight here. And he just explains it all and says, that's how it is. And then you've got You know, a couple of officers, and particularly, obviously, Stan, sort of saying, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. And Taft sort of saying, you know, I've worked this out. You just do your job.
2: Stan is such a great character in this series. He has such a dogged determination that seems to come from a very selfless place. What do you think drove him? And it would have been easier for him to just follow Taft's lead and to stop questioning
0: Yeah, I think the biggest revealer of character is always in action, right? And making sense of Stan, you just have to think he was given what was seen at the time as a sort of a lowly, almost demeaning kind of job, looking after the family. That's not real police work. So he's been consigned to that and then he stands up and makes a fuss and he will not back away from his conviction even though he's getting shouted at by his superior officer and even though there must have been that attitude of hierarchical camaraderie that I mentioned earlier that must have meant that he had an enormous amount of opposition lining up against him among his colleagues and in his workplace but he did push on anyway and that's the truth of what happened so that to me, reveals a lot about character. And it also reveals a lot, I think, about how he was perceived within the police culture that, you know, he was never commended or rewarded in any way for his work on this case.
2: I was going to say that the way in which it ends, even though he was ultimately vindicated for persevering, there's just a sadness, almost a foreshadowing that he ended up passing without really getting the credit or the recognition or any kind of promotion.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. One of the amazing things about Stan is that he was there right from the start. He did the things we show him doing in the series. He he really did go home with to Jeremy's house. He did stay on the case. And he was there all the way through to the end, taking the witnesses along to the courthouse, literally escorting... Julie Mugford along when she gave her testimony and so forth. So it was that rare gift where the truth about this story was that there was this one cop who went through the whole case and played this incredibly decisive and courageous role in the case and who tragically was never acknowledged for that.
2: Never validated by the system that he gave his life to. Colin mentions that your decision to give him the last word um, at the end of the series he referred to it as a lovely gift. Why was that so important to you? And why was it so fitting? That must have been a very difficult part to write.
0: I actually looked at some statements he'd made because Colin was never a guy who sought much media. So there weren't a lot of official statements by him on the record aside from obviously his book. But I looked at the things that he had said and I thought that if we could paraphrase or capture the spirit of those that it would be a nice full stop on the show because in the final instance this is a dark and sometimes pretty gruelling story to get through you know these terrible murders but there's that light of hope and of redemption shining through it and Colin really represents that in the story so i wanted the final word to be one of hope in the face of you know such tragedy after all Jeremy is convicted, but we don't put the truth on a plate for the audience. You know, I I expect people continue to argue about whether he was really guilty or not or whether he was rightfully convicted, whether the case was strong enough to justify him being convicted. You know, Bamba still protests his innocence today, vociferously. And then you've even got Julie does sell her story for a whole bunch of money, you know, and people see that as not a very um edifying endpoint for her either. But the one constant beacon of optimism and I think of, of something positive in this is Colin that he managed to transcend these tragedies, rebuild his life and help others to rebuild theirs.
2: That's it for this episode. I want to thank Chris Merxa for coming on the podcast and getting into the heads and hearts of these characters with me. I hope you, as I do, feel more closely connected to all those involved. On the next and final episode of the podcast, I'll be sitting down with Willow Grills, executive producer of The Murders at White House Farm, to discuss the long-lasting fallout of the murders and their place in the history of British crime. We'll talk about how the various controversies of the case continue to provoke thought more than 30 years after the murders, and the subsequent trial and verdict, as well as the effect that the tabloid press's coverage had on those involved at the time. Finally, we'll look at the case's many legacies and the short and long-term impact that the case and series had on British public opinion and police work, from attitudes about mental health to protocols for forensic investigations. The Murders at White House Farm, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Lauren Bright-Pacheco. The podcast is produced by Ethan Fixell, written and researched by Misha Perlman, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed The Murders at White House Farm, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with all episodes available to stream now.